So this is the first sermon as part of a new series. Um, if you were here last week, um, good, on. Yeah, if you were here last week, uh, you would have probably heard Dwight mention this, or maybe you saw it on Facebook, that we're going to be preaching through uh, a 10-week series on what does the Bible say about sex, sexuality, uh, gender, marriage, homosexuality, and, and so on and so on. And maybe, maybe in hearing that, you, you just cringed. Um, because if you're like me, these, these topics, they make us nervous. And, and recognize that that's because we live in a very interesting cultural moment, isn't it? That never have we been so passionate about these topics, but at once have they been so divisive. I've heard of, been told of family dinners that have turned into all-out shouting matches. I've, I've watched protests take the streets. I've... Uh, seen enough comments under YouTube videos than there probably are more than trees in Canada. <laughs> um, and this divisiveness, this, this passion, it's understandable because some of you or your close friends or your family have been hurt or discouraged or burnt by what some pastor or some Christian has told you uh, about these topics. And so these are these are personal questions for many people. And maybe you're sitting here and thinking like, oh, this is great. Like, I got my notepad. I'm ready to tackle all those issues out there. And I just want to say no to that. Not no to taking notes, but no to thinking about it, just all being issues out there. This, you can sort of like abstractly reason through. No, they're not issues out there. They're, they're people. And they're not just people out there. They're people in here. And questions about sex and sexuality and gender, those are deeply personal questions. Deeply personal questions, and I get that. I get that, we get that. The pastoral team wants you to know that we understand that. But we also want you to know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is always good news. It's still good news, always good news. That is good news for all genders, it's good news for all sexes, it's all good news for all races. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? That the gospel is good news for everyone, and because it's good news for everyone, we're committed to sharing it with everyone, but doing it with conviction and compassion. And so we want you to stick with us, please, over these next 10 weeks. And if you have questions during my sermon or some of the other ones, I want you to jot them down. I don't want you to walk out of here with unanswered questions. Um, after this service, there's going to be a time of question and response in the area kind of beyond the escalators. If you walk out, there's some tables on the other side, um, some benches, and I'll be there shortly after the service. So if you have questions, jot them down, I'll be there. But I want to open with this. This will sort of gear us up for what we're getting into. <laughs> Climb every mountain, ford every stream, follow every rainbow until you find your dream. Do you know what that's from? Yes, Sound of Music, this 1960s classic. It's a story about a woman named Maria and she's, she's escaping the convent and she's off to follow her dreams, right? And this song has become a sort of herald for some of the major culture major cultural changes that we've been seeing, right? 
And changes have continued right up until today. Listen to this modern classic. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. I'm free. Right? Let it go. <laughs> Let it go. <laughs> this is a song about identity, right? It's about, you know, freeing yourself from those oppressive expectations and following your dreams. Don't let anyone else determine who you are. Just be yourself, right? It's the you do you. This is kind of the song of our modern time. But the question I want to ask of you today is, if it's you do you, who's the you in you do you? How do you determine who you are? This is the question of identity. This is the question, who am I? Am I my feelings? Am I my expectations? Am I my dreams? Am I my body? How do I determine who I really am? And so the question of identity, this question we're going to see, the question of who am I and the question of what does it mean to be human are going to keep reoccurring throughout the series. It's going to keep resurfacing. And if you grasp what I'm telling you today, not only will you have the resources to begin answering this question, but you'll actually find that the identity on offer to you is life-giving and that has real purpose rooted in its unchanging value. And so I'm going to do this today by taking you through three points. Um, first, meet your designer. Second, know your design. And three, allow him to restore you. So first... We're going to do this by starting on the first page of the Bible. And so the Bible opens up with these words. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is where it all starts. In the beginning, God. It starts with God. It doesn't start with you and it doesn't start with me. It starts with him. And it's important that this is where we start as well. If we want to understand our identity... If we want to know who we are, that it's first and it's most important to know who God is. And when we know who God is, we can then know who we are. So then, that's the question, who's God? Well, it says, in the beginning, God created. And so God is the creator of the universe. Elsewhere, it says that there was nothing made that was not made by him. And that includes us. Paul in his letter to the Ephesians says that we are God's handiwork. And so God created you. God designed you. But why does this matter for identity? Well, uh, a number of years ago, my brother and I uh, were driving across the U.S. as part of starting up his company. And we drove through a lot of random places, but one of them was some small town in Illinois. I don't remember the name. And as we were at some intersection, we looked over, and there was a junk shop. We thought, whoa, that looks great. <laughs> so we went in there and we started looking around. And I was thrilled to find a cider press. And it was only 80 bucks. And I love like harvest parties and stuff. So we, we both pooled our money together and we bought that cider press. And we put it in the car. We stuffed it in the car. And his little Jetta. And we drove all the way home, tight and stuffy, all the way home back to Montreal. And then not long, you know, too long later, fall came along and we threw a harvest party and, you know, invited my buddy over and he brought some apples, we put them in the press, we turned the press, and it broke. Like, almost right away the thing broke. I was like, what? What kind of cider press? It's like, it wouldn't even get like an inch of juice. And so this thing is junk. 
where we bought it. So we went, we took the thing, and we parked it in the corner of my dad's living room till it remain, where it remains until this day. And uh, that is until this past year, when my, uh, my, my stepmother moved in. And my stepmother, she grew up on a farm. And she walked into our dining room, she took one look at it and said, why do you have a cheese press in your living room? <laughs> I was like, a cheese press? I thought it was a cider press. No wonder it broke so quickly. It wasn't designed to be used this way. And so it is with you. If God designed you, he determines your design. He knows what's best for you. If he's author, he has authority over your life. And as author, he speaks. And so it says, and God said, and it was so. And it repeats that nine times, and God said, and it was so. I want you to notice here, there's no gap between what God says and what he does. He's, he's, uh, he's no politician full of empty promises. There's no, there's no government shutdown. <laughs> he speaks, and it is. He designs with a purpose, and he has authority. And so this is what it means when you say that God is your creator. And so who is God? He's creator. And he's also, I want to say, he's relational. Verse 26 says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Well, who's the us that God makes in our image? Is this sort of uh, God and he's in his royal court with his angels? Is let's make man in our likeness? No, I don't think so. I, biblical theologians actually say that's acronistic. That's reading the text in the wrong time period. Rather, we should think of it more like this, that this is a clue that God is relational in his very essence, that he's not alone. You see, Christians believe that God is, yes, one in being, but he's us in persons. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And understanding this, knowing that God is triune, has huge implications on how we think about identity and love. Think about it like this. Track with me for a second. In order to love, you need someone to love. You need someone to be the, the object of your love. And yet John says that, that God is love. So how could God be love for all eternity if he's alone? Well, the answer is that God was never alone. That from an eternity past, he was us. He was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit giving and receiving love. And that creation, all of humanity, this universe, was the product of an overflow of God's love. And so what does that mean? Well, that means that God didn't create us because he was lonely and needed love. No, he created us because he had love and he wanted to share it with you and me. And so God is a relational creator and he's a designer. And so because he's creator, you have a design and because he's relational, you can know your design. And so that brings us to the second, know your design. Verse 27 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The series is titled Him and Her. I recognize just by saying him and her, or male and female, I'm already like venturing into contentious cultural waters here. 
Like, recognize the interesting cultural moment we live in. Like, has there ever been a time in history where so many in our culture have looked in on themselves and said, I think we better remove gender distinction. And I think we need to, in that, recognize that there are elements that, reasons that are, are good in driving in that. There are also reasons that are probably flawed. And I don't really want to get into this uh, right now. I think, Dwight, you're going to be picking up more on this uh, next week. So I'm just going to recognize it and move on and say, notice what God says about them, male and female, that they are both equally created in his image, that it's not just man who's in the image of God, and it's not just woman who's in the image of God, it's both equally together in the image of God. And so you ask me, well then, Jordan, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? And I say, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> um, in ancient times, some, some kings, they, they thought of themselves as God. In fact, uh, some went so far as even to refer to themselves as the image of God. And so they would make statues of themselves. They'd carve them out of wood or forge them out of brass, bang them out of gold, and they put them up in public spaces and say, the honor and the dignity and the respect that you give this statue, this likeness of me, you are giving God. Think about the example of Daniel chapter 3, right? There was King Nebuchadnezzar, the, the king of the entire Babylonian empire, and he makes this giant golden statue of himself, and he wants everybody to bow down to it. There's a special connection here, you see, between King Nebuchadnezzar and this golden statue, that the way you treated the statue was connected with the way you thought of Nebuchadnezzar. And so you either bow or you burn. Or there wasn't just special connection, there was also a sort of intended uh, reflection. Think of the height of the statue or the statue itself. It was in gold, right? And so that was to reflect the, the grandeur, the height of the statue, the grandeur of the king's kingdom and the gold, the glory of the king. And so you see this idea of being made in the image of God contains ideas of connection and reflection. But it's the revelation of, of Genesis chapter 1 that turns all of this thinking on its head. You see, in the ancient world, the Israelites, they never referred to their kings as gods, did they? In fact, they were forbidden from making images of God. Why? Because God had already made an image of himself. You and I created in the image of God. And so anything else that we make, any golden statue we make, would only fall short. And so who are you? You are created in the image of God. You are created with a the special connection. You're distinct from the rest of creation and intended to reflect his glory and rule out into this world. Like, these are extraordinary ideas. These are totally radical ideas. This is actually the basis, believe it or not, of universal human rights. Outside of this, you don't have that. This is the reason you have inherent value. This is the reason, in other words, you have value that is regardless of the circumstances. I'll illustrate it like this. I used to buy, um, I don't, <laughs> what am I saying? I like buying clothes at the Salvation Army. I still buy clothes at the Salvation Army. Maybe this is obvious now. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, but not just clothes. If you've been to our house recently, we haven't been there too long, but since we've moved in, um, in our master bedroom, there's this, this empty frame. 
And the frame is empty because Sandra and I haven't yet found a painting that we both like and we can afford. And so I find myself, as I go to the Salvation Army at our place on Sherbrooke, time and time and I'll just walk over to the, the discarded art section I'll be going through. Now imagine if I was an art connoisseur, right? And I'm going through those paintings and I find a painting that's painted by Monet. That would be amazing, right? Because it wouldn't matter if that painting had been discarded. It didn't matter what price that Salvation Army had put on that painting. That painting had inherent value because by virtue of the artist who painted it. And so it is with you, right? No matter what you think of yourself, no matter what someone else thinks of you, no matter what circumstances you are in, you have inherent value because you are created in the image of God. He designed you. And so this is what it means to be made in the image of God. Male and female, equal in inherent value. And so male and female are equal. But why create male and female? Why not just a single asexual species? How do male and female contribute to God's glory? I think the answer in part is in verse 28. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. You see, you can't carry out these mandates alone. Woman can't be fruitful and multiply without man, and man can't subdue the world without woman. They're created as, as distinct, but interdependent with each other. And God looks on this and it, it says that he says it was very good, that there's an inherent goodness in male and female being equal, but also distinct. And so if that's the case, then the differences matter. See, I think the question that we need to ask is this. If male and female both reflect the image of God differently, if we remove that distinction from them, what glory, what beauty will be lost? If male and female reflect the image of God differently, if we remove that distinction, what glory and what beauty will be lost from this world? See, there's a, there's a distinct interdependence there. That we're made for each other. I think of it like, like pairs figure skating. I actually like watching that, you know, <laughs> stuff. The agility and the strength, the glory and the beauty of the skaters, right? Each figure skater skating different parts and yet moving together as one. And so too it is with male and female, distinct parts and yet moving together as one for the glory and will of God in this world. So God made us for each other, distinct, interdependent. We're designed this way to reflect who he is in and of himself. That God, what? He was three distinct persons, wholly interdependent, and yet equal and one in essence. This is what it means to be made in the image of God. Notice you are inherently valuable and that you were designed to reflect the glory of God. Connection, reflection. Do you see that? Do you see that? Do you, do you recognize that in others? Do you celebrate that? Um, in thinking about this, I realize that my wife and I have had uh, three separate conversations with women uh, in relationships in which they have been told, you're not good enough for me. 
recently. That the guys in those relationships had told them, no one else wants to be with you. Another one, you're tarnished. Another one, you're too easy. I mean, how many of you have had words like that spoken over your life? You're tarnished. You're not good enough. Or maybe you're pathetic or you're just a six. I had a friend whose boss told them they were replaceable. (laughs) And as much as we say, I don't care what anybody else says to me, at some point when we're in the corner, those words, they start to get under our skin and we start to believe them, don't we? (laughs) And so if we're going to maintain our sense of self, if we're going to maintain our sense of identity, we sort of have two ways we can go about this. One of them is we 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 can attack back, right? You know, they hurt me, I'll hurt them back. They dehumanize me. I'll dehumanize them. They disfigured who I am. I'll disfigure them back. And I've done that. We've all done that. You hurt me. I hurt you. You trash talk me. I trash talk you when no one else is around, right? And we get hurt, right? And when we're hurt, we tend to hurt. And it creates this cycle of bitterness. And it becomes a cycle of death. And yet there's another way. And this is why I'm so in need of hearing God's word spoken over me. That instead of hearing, you're not good enough, or you're tarnished, or you're six out of ten, I can hear God say, you're mine. I want you to hear God's word spoken over you. God says that you were fearfully and wonderfully made. That he delights over you with singing. He calls you his beloved. (laughs) And so if you hear God's word spoken over you, it doesn't matter what anyone else says. But the thing is, we don't believe God's word spoken over us. Remember? No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Right? Instead, we want to follow our own feelings. Instead, we want to be our own dreams. We want to determine our own destiny. We want to be our own identity. And like I said earlier, these images that we create, they fall short of the image of God. When we try and make images of ourselves, we end up becoming dust. When we try and make ourselves God, we end up becoming nothing. When we try and control our identity to define things on our own terms, we end up just defiguring ourselves, defiguring each other, and actually disfiguring God's creation and robbing it of the glory that it was intended to reflect. And that's a tragedy. Absolute tragedy. I think seeing this is, under, this, this is central to understanding your identity. That you are at once both beauty and brokenness. And this is key. There's a sort of paradox to this. And I I think no better place to see a paradox is but in the metro late at night. At Guy Concordia Metro about a year ago, late one night, I was standing there looking across the platform, and I saw two things. One, a man cleanly shaven, nicely dressed, yet bent over alone, completely intoxicated. And I just shift my gaze as a man disheveled, poorly dressed, and yet playing beautiful music. I was like, this is the paradox of humanity. Beauty and brokenness together. 
It's like the gangster mafia man who, who buys his mother flowers. And yet this is all of us, isn't it? That given an infinitely valuable, life-giving identity, we trade it for our own disfigured identities. And so what does God do in response to this? And this is my last point. Allow his restoration. Can you move that forward? Um, three, allow his restoration. So let's go back to that uh, Salvation Army um, example. So let's say it wasn't me. Let's say it was actually the artist that painted that painting who walks into the Salvation Army that day. And he's going through those discarded paintings and he sees his painting. See, it doesn't matter at that point that that painting has been discarded. It doesn't matter that it's tarnished and disfigured. It's his painting. And he wants his painting. And so what, what can he do? He can't just say, hey, it's my painting. I'm going to take this back down. No. He actually has to buy it back. And so he pays a price for that painting and he takes it home and he cleans it and he restores it and he frames it. And that's a lot like what God has done for you. But the price he paid wasn't a thrift store price. The price that God paid was his life. Jesus says, Jesus says he was the image of the invisible God. That while we are made in or we are made according to the image of God, that Jesus is the image, he is the blueprint for humanity that we were made to live according to. And while we disfigure ourselves from it, Jesus lived perfectly according to the image of God. And yet, the Bible tells us that Jesus, who lived perfectly, he became marred. And Isaiah says he was marred. He was disfigured more than any man. Why? Because Jesus, who was perfect, was disfigured so that we who were disfigured could be made perfect. Right? And knowing this, knowing that Jesus was disfigured on our behalf can end this cycle of brokenness. It can end the cycle of death, but you need to allow him to restore you. You need Jesus' life, death, and resurrection spoken over you and made your identity. And when you do that, it says, and Paul says in Corinthians, that we, with unveiled faces, all reflect the glory of the Lord. And being transformed into his image, are being transformed into his image with intensifying power, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so the question I want to ask is, will you allow him to restore you? Will you allow him to transform you into his image? The identity that you have created for yourself is dust. But the identity that's an offer to you is life-giving and meaningful in him. I want to end with a story. Um, well, it's not much of a story, but <laughs> a few years ago, uh, my wife and I uh, went to Sri Lanka. She has a Sri Lankan heritage, and uh, we were there with her family, and her dad wanted to show us some of the significant um, places of his childhood. And one of those was the high school he went to, and so we got there, and it was late in the day, and we kind of... We got waylaid, but uh, luckily the security guard still let us in late at night. And so um, we came into the, the area where the high school was. It's, uh, um, 
It was kind of a large area all on its own apart from the city. And the place in particular he wanted to show me was actually the chapel. And I didn't realize that until we got there. And so we approached this building late at night. Um, and I could see as I approached it, even in the dark, that at the back there was this giant painted mural. And so in the dark, we approached that mural and, and we held our flashlights up to it. And for a moment, there was just some silence, some awe. And then one of Sandra's uh, sisters just turned to me and said, what does it mean? I said, I looked. I said, this is a painting of the crucifixion. And there were three thieves due to be crucified that day. But one thief was let go and Jesus was crucified in his place. And from where we're standing here on the ground, onlookers mocked Jesus. Aren't you the king? Aren't you the anointed one of God? Can't you save yourself? And from one side, one thief joined in the mocking and said, you saved others. Why don't you save us, yourself, too? And the thief on the other side said, no. We're receiving the due reward of our penalty this man has done nothing wrong. If you look on this side, the thief is looking down. He's looking at the crowd. And below him, the life has been disfigured and the glory cut off. And this thief is looking up at his creator. It's full of life below him. And Jesus this is painted by a Sri Lankan. It's painted as Sri Lankan as if to say, out of love for us, God made himself as one of us. And he looks at you and he says, we all have a choice to make. Which will you choose? Will you choose to be like the crowd that mocks and chooses the way of disfigurement and death? Or will you choose to look at your creator and choose life? Isn't this the choice on offer to each one of us. Will you allow God to perform a restoration on you and give you an identity that is life-giving, meaningful? This is what's on offer to you. In our coming weeks, we're going to be unpacking so much more about this choice and about the identity that's on offer to us. And in reflecting through this, I think I'm just going to leave you with one takeaway. One sort of core key thing that you can't walk out of here uh, and miss. And that is, being a Christian is not just another identity. It's the identity of your life. It's your core identity. I want you to think about it like this like a keychain. We've all seen those keychains where uh, you can sort of add little figments onto them. So if you're a nurse, you can get like a little stethoscope and you add it on. And if you have a best friend, they can give you a little BFF with a couple hearts and you kind of add it onto your keychain. And I think for a lot of us as Christians, we go through our lives thinking about our Christianity as another figment on the keychain. Like I'm a mom and I'm a nurse and I'm a this, I'm a that, I'm also a Christian. But Christianity is not a figment on the keychain, it's the keychain itself. 
Do you see that? Is it the core of your identity? Does it inform every part of your life? Maybe I'll just invite the band up, but I want to I wanna get... In preparing this, this really struck me. Okay, I, I just sort of want to get real that um, this message couldn't be more relevant to us today. This message couldn't be more relevant to so many of us in this room. Think back to those women, those abusive relationships. What would have meant, what would have looked like if they knew how valuable they were in their identity in Christ? See, many of us, we call ourselves Christians, right? And yet we don't realize the identity that is on offer to us, right? Those women, they would have been able to say no. They wouldn't have had to go back to that relationship again and again looking for affirmation and satisfaction because they already would have had it. They already would have had it in Christ. Their heavenly father speaking affirmation over them. That's what they needed to know. That's what they needed to hear. That's what I need to hear. That's what you need to hear. Think of the men, right? What would it have looked like if they knew that these were men and women? They were a man created in the image of God and this was a a woman created in the image of God. How would they have treated that daughter of God? Would they not, when we grasp this, when we see our identity in Christ, when we see the value, the value was that he gave himself for you, right? This is how much God valued his daughter. He gave his life for this daughter. Would you have treated her that way? We've all spoken words like this over other people. We've all disfigured others. I've done it. I've objectified. I've dehumanized. And we've all also been abused. We've been the victims. We've been on the receiving end. We've been told we're tainted. We've been told we're a six out of ten. We've been told we're not good enough. And yet what you need to hear is God's word spoken over you. And so I'm going to move into a time of prayer, and I want you to stand and pray with me if this resonates. If the Spirit of God is speaking to you right now, I want you to stand and pray along with me, and I'm going to pray two prayers. One is for the person who has been abused, who's had these words spoken over them, and the other for the one who has spoken those words. And I recognize that's all of us, but some of us, the Spirit of God is leading in a particular direction this morning. So will you stand with me in prayer? Thank you, Jesus, that you are here with us this morning. That you saw us as so valuable that you were willing to pay for us with your life. Jesus, I pray that you would be present right now. Jesus, I pray for those here who have been abused. Jesus, I pray for those here who have been on the receiving ends of words that were spoken over them that were death. I pray against that right now in the name of Jesus. I pray those words would be loosed in Jesus' name. Father, you rejoice over them. 
You sing over them with joy and delight, and you call them your own. (laughs) These are your sons, and these are your daughters. I pray that, Father, each person here who has been hurt, who has been abused, who thinks that they are tarnished, they're their second best, would hear you call them your own. And, Father, I pray for the person here who knows they've been an abuser, that they have disfigured others, that they have, they have hurt and cut and been a part of the cycle of bitterness that leads to death. And so I pray against that in Jesus' name. Lord, we bring this to you and we confess it. And I say no more of this in my life, Jesus. That no more do I want to speak words of death. I want to speak words of life and I need you to do it. So Holy Spirit of God, come and fill me, I pray. And change my heart, restructure me so that who you are, the value that you bring and the meaning that you bring is at the core of who I am. Because I know this will change everything. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.